Our New Testament reading today is in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, starting in verse 18. John 5, actually starting in verse 19, sorry. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Amen. And our sermon text is in 2 Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, music team. It is good that we are here today, and uh, I pray that the Lord will will speak to you from his word today. Um, we continue in 2 Peter chapter 2. Um, as we saw last week, Peter has uh, opened up for his readers uh, the pondering of the subject of false teachers. Uh, admittedly, this is a very sensitive subject. The big question, uh, which is very, very difficult to answer, is this. 
When does an individual cross the line from teaching incorrect doctrine to teaching false doctrine? In other words, when does one who stands behind a pulpit or uh, does uh, YouTube uh, sessions or stands before a Sunday school class or whoever opens this book and teaches it, when does that person go from being an incorrect teacher or a mistaken teacher or a misinformed teacher or a uh, immature teacher, um, all forgivable and correctable offenses to being what Peter's talking about right here, to being a false teacher facing the ultimate judgment of God. Now, we're not going to deal with that question today, sorry, (laughs) but I wanted you to start thinking about it if you haven't already, because at some point in this uh, kind of a series within the series, study within the study, study of false teachers within the study of 2 Peter, somewhere in this, I want to deal with that. I want to, I want to strive, I want to try, I want to attempt by the grace of God to deal with that. Um, give you a little hint to where I think we might be going on that. I, I believe based on the characteristics that Peter gives us of false teachers, I believe you could, you could teach doctrine correctly on all the major issues, okay? Realizing there's disagreement and, uh, bet- among secondary issues. For example, classic among the Reformed, the disagreement between who are the subjects of baptism. We do not think our Presbyterian brothers are false teachers. We do disagree on who are the subjects of baptism. We believe that they are professing believers with a credible testimony and a credible lifestyle and not infants. Okay, we totally disagree on that. But we would not label them as false teachers. And I hopefully, I hope, I mean, I know some hardliners that would label us as false teachers, but I hope most of them would not. Okay, so we're not talking about that. What I was trying to say was, I believe you can teach doctrine, biblical doctrine correctly, and still be a false teacher, even though what you're teaching may not be false. If you're motivated by greed, power, sensuality, and all these characteristics that Peter's talking about. So like I said, this is a sticky question and a sticky subject. And we're not going to dodge it. We're going to try to deal with it. And we're going to deal with it with grace, though, okay? So be thinking about that question. When does an incorrect teacher or a mistaken teacher uh, or an unlearned teacher cross the line to becoming a false teacher as defined by Scripture? So be pondering that in the weeks to come. And pray for your pastor as we uh, try to tackle that question in in the very near future. Okay, so... Quick review of last week from verses 1 to 3. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we thank you 
for this day. We thank you for another day together. It's good that we are here. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for our guests that are here today, Father. I pray that they will be blessed and encouraged. And if they don't know Jesus, I pray they'd be born again. I pray that you would grant them eternal life on this very day, for this is the day of salvation. Father, thank you so much for your word. We even thank you for the the hard subjects by which as we tackle them, you grow us and you change us and you renew our mind. So help us not to shy away from the challenging subjects, but fill us with your spirit and guide us by your spirit that we may handle the word of truth rightly. Help us, Father. We need you desperately. We need you so desperately. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to pay for our sin, to die on the cross in our place, to absorb the wrath of God that we deserved. And thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to apply the work of Jesus to our dead hearts, to give us life, and to sanctify us, to transform us into the image of your Son from glory to glory. We praise your matchless name and we thank you. And now, Father, we ask you to speak to us. Speak to us from your precious, precious word. Change us. May we leave here different more like Jesus. Father, we ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts corporately together today would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our great rock and our mighty redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. Quick review. Quick review from verses 1 to 3 that we looked at last week. In, in those verses, Peter gave us five Words of warning. Number one, false teachers will dwell among unsuspecting churches. So we must be alert. We must be aware. We must know the truth well enough to spot the counterfeit truth. Let me repeat that. We must know the truth well enough to spot the counterfeit truth. I'm told that they train uh, bankers and tellers and whatever to uh, identify counterfeit money, and the way they do that is they study diligently real money. Because when you know the real money, then you, it's easy to spot the counterfeit. Well, the same is true for the truth of God. We've got to know it. We've got to know doctrine. We've got to be, in a sense, all of us theologians. We've got to know theology. We've got to know doctrine because those that don't are the ones that get duped by the false teachers and the charlatans and the hucksters that abound out there. So we must know the truth well enough to spot the counterfeit truth. We must be discerning. We must have the ability to know when something just doesn't sound right. That just doesn't sound right. That doesn't have the ring of truth to it. Hear the exhortation from Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is taking several words there to basically say, grow up. Grow up. Milk was good when you were first born again. But now it's time to move on. It's time to move on. And then he says, uh, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, that's part of the calling on our life as Christians, to be able to distinguish the good from the evil. So the false teachers are out there. And we, we've got to be alert. We've got to be aware. We've got to know the truth so we can spot the counterfeits. Number two, we saw that false teachers will distort our undefended beliefs. We must strive to not let this happen. We must fight against distortions of God's words, like you can lose your salvation. We've got to fight against that. Or Jesus died for every single individual who has ever lived. We've got to fight against that because if that's true, then hell would be empty. Hell would be empty. Jesus paid it. He paid it. Why would God demand double payment unless he's an unrighteous judge? Why would he allow, make me pay for my sin in hell if Jesus has already paid for it? Double payment. It would be like me seeing you in Applebee's, and because I love you so much, I go to the, the, the waitress, your server, and say, look, here, I want to pay their bill. I want that person over there, I want to pay for their meal. Oh, well, you're just a wonderful, nice person. Yeah, but I love that person. It's not because I'm wonderful, it's because I love them. And so I pay their bill. But then when you leave, that person, because they're crooked and wicked, they make you pay again. Double payment. Bible doesn't teach that. Bible teaches that Jesus paid for the sins of those that would believe in him. Not for every individual in the world. Because if that's true, everybody's going to heaven and we're universalists. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay, more on that later, okay? Uh, but we've got we've to fight against these distortions of truth. Like another one, the baptism of the Spirit is a second work of grace after you're saved. Yeah, it's good that you're saved, but you're really not an elite Christian yet because you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit Bad, wrong, incorrect. Okay, we got to fight against these distortions of truth. At salvation, you receive the fullness of the Spirit. First Corinthians, I think, 12, 13, we have all, all, all. That means all in the Greek, all. Every one of us, every single one of us. All of us have been baptized with the Spirit into His body. Every single one of us. We get all of Jesus. We get all of the Spirit the moment we're born again. Now, some of us grow at faster rates. Some of us grow at slower rates. For some of us, it might look like we're not spirit-filled. But the Bible teaches we receive the fullness of the Spirit at conversion. We've got to fight against anything that doesn't teach that. Okay, I could go on and on, and I went too far already. But we must, bottom line, we must teach sound doctrine. And why that's important, I can't leave that. What, what automatically happens when you teach that, okay, being saved is good, but man, you still got to get this second work of grace. What, is, what does that automatically do 
to the body of Christ? What does that automatically do to your church? What does that automatically do to the people of God? Divides them in half. Splits them in half. Total disunity. Okay? You got the spiritual elites over here that have been baptized with the Spirit. And you've got just these people that just been saved over here, but they haven't got this second work yet. And they're not quite yet. That just divides your church. So we've got to fight against these things that divide the church. Okay, number three. After teaching sound doctrine, and we, we must be ready in season and out of season to do it. In season and out of season. That has nothing to do with fall, winter, spring, and summer. In season and out of season. When we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. Do you think we always feel like having doctrinal fights? Nobody wants to have doctrinal fights. I, I, I know there are some people that thrive on that. And really, I don't thrive on that. I want to defend the faith. I want to contend for the faith. I want to fight for the truth. But I, I, I don't thrive on the fights. Earlier in my life, it might have looked like I did. I don't. I don't. But I do love God enough, and I do love Jesus enough to defend what he said. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do, okay? So, false teachers are out there. They will distort our undefended beliefs. Third, they will deceive us. They will deceive our unguarded minds. This is Satan's goal. It's always been his goal. That's what he did in the garden from the very beginning, deceived Eve. That's still his goal. Sadly, he attained his goal in the garden, plunging all of us, all of humanity, into sin. And it will always be his goal, as Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's Satan's goal, and he uses false teachers to do it. Number four, we saw that false teachers will defame our unashamed lifestyle. Paul, Peter tells us that because of false teachers, the way of truth, the way of truth, a phrase meaning the Christian way of life, the lives of Christians, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Because of false teachers, Christianity will be slandered. We will be mocked. We will be put down, greedy, sensual, man-centered hucksters will cause the world to defame the name of Jesus and the reputation of his followers, no matter how sound a teacher you are. A teacher you are. You claim to be a Christian. This dude over here claims to be a Christian. This dude is teaching kooky stuff. You're teaching uh, straightforward, down-the-line doctrinal stuff. But because you both claim Christ, you're thrown into the same basket of dumb people, stupid people, kooky people. And that's what Peter's talking about here. The, the way of truth will be blasphemed by the world. And sadly, that will happen until Jesus returns. So just gear up for it. Just gear up for it. Stand against it. Our mindset and our resolve must be based on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. No matter what anybody else is saying or doing, you always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The false teachers can't take that away from you. 
And the world can't take that away from you. Your labor, brother and sister, dearly beloved, is not in vain. So you keep pressing on. You set your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus. And you run the race until he returns or he takes you home. And know that your labor will not be in vain. Your life will not be wasted. God will be pleased. And when he sees you, he will say, well done, a good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Hallelujah. No false teacher, no worldly system can ever take that away from you. So you stand firm, brother and sister. You stand firm. You walk tall. You take a back seat to no one. You're an ambassador for the king of kings. You're a child of the creator of the universe. You don't back down from anybody. And you do it lovingly. You do it graciously. And you're equipped when you know the book. You've got to know this book in the basics. You don't have to be a theologian. You, don't, you know, we all have to. Okay, I know I just contradicted myself earlier. I said we all have to be theologians. Yes, we all need to love theology. The, the, theology, the knowledge of God. We all need to know God better and better. Okay, but you don't have to be on a seminary staff or PhD or whatever. Just. Know God by knowing the book to the best of your ability with the Spirit's help and by the grace of God. And your labor will not be in vain. But if you skim around on the surface or stay out on the periphery and just kind of fiddle dink around with it, then, then you're headed for trouble, headed for deception. You can be duped. You can be fooled. So last one, number five. False teachers will deny our unrivaled Lord. They will deny our master who bought his church with his blood, who redeemed his church at the cross, of which they are not a part as evidenced by their actions in peddling false doctrine and leading others astray. They may have at one time looked like they were a part of us, but they never really were as the Apostle John says in his first little letter, they, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. As verse 4 says, that, we, that starts our text for today, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God's wrath hangs over their heads like the sword of Damocles. Their ultimate judgment on the last day is sure. So that's a quick review. I went a little longer on that than I planned. Got kind of fired up there about a couple of things. But anyway, let's press on. Okay, don't leave me now. Don't leave me. Let's press on. And as we do this, note this. Verses 4 through 10a comprise one sentence in the Greek. It's one humongous sentence, one long sentence okay we've seen this before in our study of the bible but this is another example one long sentence and it's one i hope this will kind of make it easier for you to see what peter's saying it is one huge if then statement what we call a conditional statement if this is true then this is true okay so we're dealing with one big six or six or seven verse long if-then statement, one big conditional statement with several propositions and a conclusion. So do you see it? You have an if in verse 4. 
You have an if in verse 5, you have an if in verse 6, and an if in verse 7. Then in verse 9, you have the then. Okay? And let's make sure we understand something. The if, which in the Greek, in the original language, in the original manuscript, the if only appears in verse 4. But it's added by the translators in verses 5, 6, and 7 for clarity. So that we won't, the reader won't forget that Peter is laying out some propositions. He's laying out some ifs, okay? In the words of John MacArthur, the if does not imply uncertainty here and is probably better rendered since. In other words, the statements Peter will put forth are not really conditions but they are statements of fact. In other words, angels, fallen angels, were actually punished. They were all, in reality, cast into hell and committed to chains of gloomy darkness until the final judgment. Then the second example he gives, the flood, did actually happen. It's not like, well, if the flood happened, we're not really sure, but if it did happen, then no, no, no. Since the flood happened, since this happened, since we know this as history, then this, okay? The flood did actually happen. The ancient world was actually engulfed by the flood of God's wrath. Sodom and Gomorrah, to move to the third example, were actually in real time in history, incinerated and condemned to extinction. So what you have here is this big conditional statement that is basically saying this, and I'm quoting Charles Swindoll. If or since God has historically established a pattern of reserving judgment of the wicked for the proper time while rescuing his righteous people, then we can be confident that he will do the same in the future. Rescue us from the coming wrath and leave the wicked false teachers behind for judgment. So there you go. That's the big message for today. So you're dismissed. Not really. Okay. Peter Peter gives us three illustrations from past history to demonstrate that God judges those who oppose him and protects and gives salvation to those who love him. That's the bottom line. If you don't get anything else out of today, that's what I want you to get. That God is a God of judgment, but he's also a God of salvation. He's a God of, of, of doling out deserved punishment, but he's also a God of mercy who spares his bride, who spares his elect. That's what I want you to know today. Okay, if you don't get anything else, that doesn't mean you can check out on me now. I want you to hang with me. But that's, that's the main message of today. So let's look at this. What I've called on your sermon sheet there, a brief history of God's judgment. A brief history of God's judgment. Number one, you've got the judgment on the ungodly angels. The judgment on the ungodly angels. 
Now, what we, we said last week how, how similar Second uh, Peter is to Jude. And some uh, scholars think that Peter might have been actually reading uh, Jude's letter as he wrote. Or it could have, could have been reversed. Jude might have been reading Peter's letter. Anyway, they, they're, they're similar statements. Look at, listen to this in Jude 6. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There it is. Same thought, same, same historical event, the judgment of the fallen angels. Now, question, big question comes, who are these angels? Who are these angels? There's much theological speculation here with commentators disagreeing, okay? Two major theories, two major theories. Number one, they could be the group that fell with Satan uh, that we read about, I think, in Revelation 12. They could be the group, one-third of the angels were kicked out with Satan. When Satan tried to take over God's throne in heaven, theologians believe he was kicked out of heaven, and a third of the angelic beings went with him, okay? So it could be that group. And they became demons, okay? We read about demons in the Gospels several times. Jesus' encounter with, de- with demons, okay? The snag here with that is that the text says they are chained up. So they're not roaming the earth like most demons do, not like the demons that we read about in the Gospels that Jesus dealt with. Maybe this group did something else to get them sent immediately to hell. Literally, the Greek is Tartarus, a Greek term uh, uh, used in Greek mythology to describe the, the subterranean abyss that is even lower than Hades. Okay. John MacArthur makes this comment about that. He said, Peter must have been confident that his readers understood exactly what he meant since he offered them no additional explanation of the term. Now, let's make sure we understand Peter is not approving of Greek mythology. He's just speaking the language of his readers. Tartarus would have been a familiar term used for the hottest section of hell. As one commentator said, the hell hole of hell. This is a bad place. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there, okay? So, the angels could be the angels that were expelled from heaven with Satan and became demons. But then, then the question arises, well, it couldn't have been all of them because there was demonic activity on the earth, especially during Jesus' day, on, time on earth. So you still got questions with that one. Secondly, they could, could be the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6. Oh, no, Genesis 6. Oh, God, I don't want to go there. But it talks about sons of God who intermarried with human women. And so because of this horrific sin, we're sent directly to the abyss, to Tartarus, until the judgment. I'm not too supportive of that view because my big question is, okay, how do angels procreate? Since we know, according to Jesus, they don't marry. So, so you got questions with that as well. Well, maybe they possessed humans and humans did. Okay, could be, maybe, okay. Here's what I want you to remember from this. We could go on and on about who these angels are. Bottom line, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. What we need to keep in mind is that it is not Peter's purpose to get lost in the theological weeds of which fallen angels these these are. Instead, 
his major point is, like these angels, whichever group they are, okay, the original group that were kicked out of heaven or the group that somehow intermarried with human beings, whichever group they are, the message Peter wants us to get is false teachers who oppose God like these angels did in whatever way they did will face judgment and the wrath of God. That's the message. That's the message. I love this quote by Simon Kistemacher, and he makes a great, great point that we will do well to heed this morning. He says this, when did the angels fall into sin? Scripture provides little information. The Bible is God's revelation about the creation, fall, and redemption of man, but not about angels. The angelic world is mentioned only tangentially in Scripture. Tangentially meaning on the periphery. They are side issues. In other words, let's not get hung up on what happened to angels. And let, let's, please know this, unsaved people love to do this. They love to do this. They love to try to avoid the big questions like, what are you going to do with Jesus? With questions like, okay, who were these angels? Or how did, how did a good God allow evil? Or, uh, you know, these, these side questions, they love to do this. They love to get us hung up on peripheral subjects. Churches often do it with wild speculations about prophecy and the end times. They love these end time conferences and trying to relate, you know, what the Bible's teaching to current events. And everybody gets all hung up and fired up about that and not as fired up about the lordship of Jesus over our lives. People, just know that people love to try to get you off track. They love to do this. So, I say amen to what Professor Kistemacher said. We don't really need to worry about it. Let's not get distracted. Let's not get hung up on unclear issues. Let's make sure we have the clear issues down. Like Jesus is God. He died for the sins of those who would believe in him. He is coming back. God is the creator of all things. And every single individual will answer to him. Basics like that. That's where we want our focus. Bottom line, these angels were with God. Right? They were created beings. They were with God. They beheld his glory before creation. God cast them into hell for their rebellion. Whatever form of that rebellion took, whether they were just Satan followers or human being intermarriers, it really doesn't matter. God judged them, and he was righteous in doing so, and he will be righteous to punish teachers who distort his truth purposefully with the purpose of leading his people astray. Okay, the second example Peter gives is judgment on the ungodly world. Judgment on the ungodly world. 
he mentions the flood, okay? In uh, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, seven others being his wife, three sons and their wives, okay? Uh, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we've got judgment on the ungodly world. We go from judgment on the ungodly angels, whatever they did, doesn't matter, to judgment on the ungodly world. Now, if you recall our study of 1 Peter not too long ago, Peter also mentioned the flood in his first letter. Obviously, he likes to use the account of the flood to illustrate the contrast between the punishment of the ungodly and the salvation of the elect. We all know that the flood is a historical event. It's not some allegory. It's not some, you know, fairy tale to try to, oh, it was represented the flood of sin of the world. No, it was actual water. It was actual water. You would drown in it, okay? Uh, Genesis 6, 5 through 8 describes the reason for it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth. Well, this is one of the saddest texts of Scripture, isn't it? It's one of the saddest texts of Scripture. And it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But, hallelujah, thank God, but Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the human race gets a do-over. We get a do-over through Noah and his family. Again, what's the message? What's the message here? Like God judged the ancient world, except for eight people saved by grace, he will also judge the false teachers that he's talking about in his second letter. Then the third example he gives is judgment on the ungodly cities. Judgment on the ungodly cities. Verse 6 and 7, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example, see, an example, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So again, you've got, the, you've got both sides of it. You've got the judgment of the cities, of the wicked in the cities, destroying the cities completely, and the salvation of the one who, had, who was claimed to be, or who was declared righteous. Three times Peter uses that word to describe Lot. Okay, so this is the third example. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that we read about in Genesis 19. And only Lot and his two daughters survived this. Again, I like Kistemacher, he quotes, he says this, Even in those days, Sodom and Gomorrah, were chief cities known for their wickedness and especially for the homosexuality of their inhabitants. The sin of these people was so grievous that God determined to destroy the entire plain of the Jordan. And once again, Jude has a comment in Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example, there's the word again, an example of judgment, an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I have, I have a lot more to say about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Uh, but I don't want to open that can right now. At the, at the end of a, we're getting to the end of a message. I don't want to open up a new can here. Uh, but Lord willing, I'm going to revisit this a little bit. But let me ask you a question to be thinking about next week. When you hear the term, when you hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, don't say it out loud. Okay, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay, keep that in the back of your mind till next week. Lord willing, if I'm still alive, we'll, we're going to pick up on that. I, I got more to say, but I, just did, I had too much to say to include it in this message. We'd be here too long. Okay, but I do have more to say, and we're going to pick that up next week. Okay. Okay, so moving on. Not only do we have a brief history of God's judgment, angels, fallen angels of the entire world, except eight at the time of the flood, and then two very wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Not only do we have those examples of God's judgment, we also have a blessed reminder of God's grace. First, in the preservation of Noah, the preservation. Verse 5 says that God preserved Noah. Interesting word, preserved Noah. So once again, we have a synonym for salvation. It's a preservation. God preserves us. He preserves us. Thankfully, God didn't destroy everyone when he flooded the world. By his grace, a family was saved to keep humanity going. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that when the flood subsided, uh, God said pretty much the same thing to Noah and his sons and, and their wives that he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And we'll just start over. Let's do it again. Try it again. Here we go. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, but Hebrews eleven seven gives us this interesting tidbit about Noah. It tells us that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir. He's, he inherited something. He didn't earn it. He, was, he inherited it. He, he was an heir of the righteousness. This imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who hadn't even come on the scene yet in human form. And, and Noah inherits that even during the Old Testament days. And in verse 5, Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. A herald. What's that? That's what I'm doing right now. I'm heralding to you the good news of God and the danger of God's judgment that you want to avoid. Obviously, Noah was preaching to the depraved people around him well, think about it. Let's think. I love that as, as, a, as, a, as a preacher myself. I, I love this thought. Think about it. Noah was the only preacher on the earth. Can you imagine being the only preacher? Man, now, man, we, are, we, we abound. We abound. Maybe that's one of the problems. There's too many of us, okay? Uh, and, and you want to, you know, you want to stick with the ones that are going with this, okay? So, and that's what we strive to do here. But Noah was the only preacher on the earth, the only source of preached truth, the only preacher of righteousness. The gigantic boat he was building would provide him ample opportunities to preach to those who would be mocking him? What are you doing, Billy? What's this boat for? What? Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? We don't even. They, they, it never rained. Right? You, you remember that? It never rained. 
what is going on? All this mocking, and he's able to pray. He's able to respond by preaching. Or, or, or those that were questioning him, man, he had captive audiences. And to those that he hired to work on the construction, he was able to preach to them for 120 years. As he was building the ark, Noah exhorted people to repent. But no one repented. No one listened to him. Proof of that, everyone perished. Every single one of them. Except no one his family. But once again, the bottom line of what Peter wants us to get here is that the worldwide flood reminds us of God's judgment. Noah and his family remind us of God's grace. So the questions for you today is, have you received God's grace or will you receive his judgment? Again, that's the bottom line of today. We can get all caught up. I mean, this is one of those difficult texts, you know, what's he really talking about here? We can go all these side trails and about angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. And all. No, but the bottom line, judgment or salvation, which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? That's been God's mode of operation for all of redemptive history. There's only two groups of people, those that will be judged because of their rejection of Jesus Christ or those that have been saved by the amazing grace of God and given new hearts to repent of their sin and to confess Jesus as Lord. That's the bottom line of today. I can't emphasize that enough. But before we leave this, I just got to mention this. There's another sign from the flood account that reminds us of God's grace that we read about in Genesis 9. Peter doesn't mention it here, but I had to bring it in. I had to bring it in. And that's, of course, you're familiar with the story. That is the rainbow, the rainbow. And I love these words from Glenn Scribner. This is one of our books. I think this was our first book of the month for this year, uh, Reading Between the Lines, an excellent little running commentary on as you read through the Bible. And, and uh, Dr. Scribner gives these Wonderful little insights and nuggets. And here's what he said about the, the, the rainbow. He said, this is not a bow to put in your hair. It's not a bow you tie around a present. This is a war bow. This is a bow and arrow bow. This bow is death dealing. And you might think, well, that's a funny sign to attach to a promise of life. Well, it would be if the bow was pointed at us. If the bow was pointed at us, it would be a divine threat. But it's not. It's pointed at heaven. I mean, think about it. Rainbow, which way is it pointed? It's pointed up. It's pointed at heaven. The message the arrow of judgment is pointed at heaven. God, oh, I get goosebumps thinking about this. God takes the arrow of judgment for his people in his sinless son nailed to a cross. God doesn't wink at sin or sweep it under the rug. He still hates it. He's still at war with it. He doesn't put away the bow of judgment. But it's not fired at us. It's not fired at his people. It's not fired at God's elect. 
On the cross, Jesus takes the arrow of judgment for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior is Jesus our Lord. Finally, we get the rescue of Lot here. Another example of God's grace and God's mercy. Lot is one of the Bible's complicated characters. And think about it. Most of them are, are, right? Most of them are. But the only one you don't... By the only one that the Bible doesn't real, reveal any skeletons in the closet is Daniel. You don't really read negative about Daniel, but, but most of them you do, right? David, murderer, adulterer, come on. Lot, he's one of these guys. I mean, dads, would you ever offer your daughters to get guys beating on your door? You know? Well, yeah, you want to protect the, the angelic beings that, that are there, that the the guys beating on the door want to have relations with. Again, more on Sodom. I'm not going to, to Sodom and Gomorrah right now, and that's next week. Okay, we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, but Lot was not a very model character. When you read about him in Genesis 19, you, you, would, have to say, you would have to say that his actions are very questionable. You know, even after he gets rescued, he commits incest with his daughters. You say, well, they tricked him. Okay, okay, but, you know. Complicated, complicated figure, complicated character, like most of us, right? Like us. We've all got pasts probably that we, don't, we wouldn't like to talk about. That God rescued us. That's the word here for Lot. He preserved Noah. He rescued Lot. Another synonym for salvation. Salvation is a rescue. I mean, you've read the story. The, the, the angels, the angelic beings literally, literally had to take Lot's hand and his family's hand and pull him out. Even then, the wife blew it by looking back. A rescue. We've been rescued. God rescued us from death and hell and our sin. And he's making us, he's changing us. He's making us more like Jesus. So even though Lot was a complicated figure, and we'll... We'll kind of include him next week, too, when we uh, come back to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible's testimony about him is clear. He's righteous. Peter says it three times in our text. Three times he uses that adjective to describe him. He wants us to know that Lot was a righteous man. He was saved. Wasn't his righteousness. Just like with us. We don't get into heaven on our righteousness, right? Our righteousness is like what? You know it. Filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. Filthy rags. Literally menstrual cloths. That's our righteousness. It's worthless. It's worthless. That's why we can't make a right decision to a supposed offer at the cross. And I'm getting back to my introduction, okay? But we can't make a right decision because there's none righteous. No one does good. To make the right decision about Jesus' death on the cross would be a good thing. But we can't do that in our own power. We can't do that in our own strength. We need a new heart. We need a new life. We need a renewed mind to do that. And God in salvation, in his rescue of us, gives it to us. Praise the Lord. Now, does that make you worship him or what? That's why we want to preach God rightly. Because God saved us to be what? Worshippers. John 4. Read John 4. Woman at the well. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And this is what God is seeking, worshipers. And you don't get worshipers by portraying a Jesus that did everything he can do, but now he's wringing his hands hoping you make the right decision. 
that's not the perfect person I want to worship. I want to worship the one that has busted down the gates of hell and dragged me out of the fortress of my self-little, self-made kingdom and rescued me. That moves me to worship. And we want to be a worshiping church. Where was I? Lot. A picture, a perfect picture, a beautiful picture. Maybe not perfect, but a, a, a straight-on picture of imputed righteousness. And because he has been declared righteous, he is rescued. And he is rescued from the depraved surroundings that, the Bible tells us, distressed him and tore him. Obviously, he was having a struggle with this. He wasn't accepting the lifestyle around him. He was fighting against it. It was tormenting him. It distressed him. He appeared to be fighting against it, sometimes making bad decisions. Huh, who does that sound like? Yeah, me, you, us. More on that next week, okay? We'll talk more about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah next Sunday when we, when we just talk about the whole neighborhood there. We'll talk about Lot and the neighborhood he lived in. But for now, let's just say this. In Lot, once again, we have a picture of the grace of God that rescues us from the world and the judgment that we deserved. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. All right, let's wrap it up. I think Paul has a good word of summation for us this morning in Romans eleven twenty-two. And the context here, man, you remember that time, great time we spent, for those of you that have been with us for a while, in Romans 9 through 11. Woo! The place of Israel, the... God's election, uh, man, what a great three chapters, okay? So the context is, Paul is talking about the Jews who were cut off from Israel and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who had been grafted in by the grace of God, okay? The group that thought they were in weren't in. And the group that didn't have a clue were in. That's the same message, right? There's two groups of people. Those that are not in and those that are in. And my prayer for every single one of you is the prayer that we looked at at the beginning of this, this, our study of this book, that you will make your calling and election sure. You will know that you are in. But in Romans eleven twenty two, Paul says, this is exactly what we've been doing this morning. Listen to what he says. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. In this case, in the Romans case, the Jews that had been cut off. But God's kindness to you, you Roman Gentiles. God is given the gospel to you. Provided, provided, key word, you continue in his kindness. Perseverance of the saints. True believers will continue. When the smoke is cleared, they will still be there. They will still be standing with Jesus. Their eyes fixed on him. Running the race one step at a time. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. That's the first John 2 thing, right? They were of us. They said they were of us, but they're not really of us because if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. 
Now, let's break this verse down. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Well, that's what we've been doing. God's kindness in his salvation of Noah and his family and Lot and his daughters. And his severity in his judgment of fallen angels, a wicked world, and wicked, the wicked cities of the valley. Then severity toward those who have fallen, like angels, pagans, phony believers, false teachers, etc. But God's kindness to you, the you being any person who has been granted the new birth. Next phrase, provided you continue in his kindness, provided you persevere, provided you continue to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, not in total perfection, but in continual repentance and faith, not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate that you have received it, the proof of your new birth, your continuance in the kindness of God will be the proof that you've been born again. Otherwise, last phrase, you too will be cut off. In other words, true believers will persevere. They will continue in the faith. And if they don't, it shows they were never saved and they will face the judgment of God, just like fallen angels and false teachers and any person does not, does not con- repent of their sin and confess Jesus as Lord. So I'll ask you one more time. Have you received God's grace? Like Noah? Like Lot? Or will you receive his judgment? Like the fallen angels and the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah and the wicked of the ancient world when it was flooded? As always... The good news is this. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, the kindness that you've lavished upon us, rescuing us from the judgment and preserving us and making us more like Jesus day by day. What a blessing. What a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for the simplicity, the profound simplicity of the gospel. There's good news and there's bad news. And the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. And the bad news is really bad. If we could ask the people of the ancient world, they would tell us that. If we could ask the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would tell us that. So because the bad news is so bad for those who reject Jesus, the good news is unimaginably and amazingly good. New life, a new heart, a new family, a new father a new ultimate dwelling place, a rescue from the world, and a preservation until the last day. Thank you, Father. 
Thank you for Jesus. What a joy it is now to come to this table and fellowship with him and with each other as we remember the good news of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.